What's up, gang? It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with you to James chapter 2. Uh, over the course of the last handful of weeks, we have been working through the book of James, and we're going to continue to do so uh, for probably the next uh, 11 or 12 weeks. This is week four of this series, and we are in James chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1 in a few moments, and we're going to work through verse 13. And we have a lot to accomplish, and even as James makes the case here, uh, for what it looks like to treat people well, it is interesting because he has a myriad of other things to address that have great theological premise here. And so we're not going to try to, we're not going to skip over anything. We're going to dive straight in. But in order to understand a little bit about what James is talking here uh, in James chapter two, you got to go back just a touch. And I'm not going to read it for you, but I just want you to understand what it is that James is talking about. He says in James chapter one, beginning around verse uh, 22, he just says, hey, don't be deceived, brothers. And then he says, you're not to be merely hears the word and so deceive yourselves. You're to do what it says. And then he gives you a couple of applications, some ways to check whether or not you're doing what it says. And one of the things he says at the end of chapter one, he just says, hey, look, if you think you're a religious person and you can't control your tongue, you can't bridle what you say, then he goes, you need to know that you're a man who looks in the mirror and forget what he looks like. So he goes, you're not acting the way that you should as a believer in Christ. But he also says in verse 27, there's a re religion that's also worthless. And that is if you're not caring for orphans and widows in their affliction. Uh, let me go one step further. For us on Mother's Day, if you are a son or a daughter in here and you don't care well for your parents, that's also a responsibility. I think oftentimes we miss this in the church. This is a side note. This is, you just write it down for you. You can think about it later. We think it's the church's responsibility first and foremost to care for widows and orphans. And I don't believe it is. I believe it's first falls to family and then moves to the church. And if the family does a really good job at caring for the elderly or for the widows and orphans, then the church by and large doesn't have to do as much of that. Now, the question is, is, does the church still have responsibility? Yes. And matter of fact, if we don't presume such a responsibility, our religion is worthless. That's what James is saying. Then he goes on and he addresses another scenario. So he says, hey, don't be a man who looks in the mirror, forgets what he looks like. He says, control your tongue, care for widows and orphans. And then he moves to this third application, which is the, the idea of partiality. So he says this, beginning in Chapter two, verse one, he says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, when he talks about partiality, he's using a Greek word there, which is translated in your Bible potentially as favoritism, same thing. So he says, partiality, favoritism. He says, have nothing to do with that as you hold to the faith. So he says, if you are holding the faith and he's writing to a group of people who are believers in Christ and he's just writing to these people, though they're persecuted and have experienced hardships of a variety of kinds because of their faith, he says, one of the ways it's best demonstrated is when you don't show favoritism to one person or one group of persons over another. He says, but instead in our faith, what we we keep our eyes on the Lord of glory. And the word glory there is the word doxa. If you were, grew up in church, at the very end, you would hold hands together and you would sing the doxology. It was a song um, that you would sing together and it was about just praising God. That's what doxa means. It just, it just talks about the splendor, the majesty, the, 
majestic purposes of God. That's what it literally means, doxa. So when it says this, don't keep your eyes on the partiality of man, the favoritism of man, but keep your eyes set on things above, on Christ. Now, I presume to believe that what James is doing here as the brother of Jesus, he's making the point that you and I should gaze at the glory of God and not the citizenship of others. So I would say that there's a myriad of us that come in and we come in with eyes closed, head bowed, and we exalt Christ. I would say there's another group of people, they come in and they don't close their eyes and they don't bow their heads, but they look around and they observe what others are doing. And it's oftentimes the case that we are in some ways making judgments or presuming things about others even within our own midst. And so while the pastor teaches, you're looking at someone else. While we're singing congregationally, our gaze is not on the king of glory, but it's on the people around us. And what James says is that is treacherous ground. You need to be careful. Now, if you understand what I'm talking about, um, let me put it this way. Uh, y'all know, y'all ever seen the YouTube videos, the people of Walmart? Y'all ever seen those? Yes, you're like, hey, honey, come here. And you watch these and you see the people at Walmart. Now, real quickly, before we make fun of them, let me just first say I am one of the people at Walmart. So I look kind of nice today, but I'm usually, I roll off in there with some shorts and flip-flops. I'm a, I'm a Walmart person, okay? So I would presume to believe that many of you, or like you, have judged me at some time, and I have likely judged you as well. James is just saying, you gotta be careful of that. Because if we're not careful, A demonstration of our faith is to look horizontally rather than vertically. And we do that in judgmental ways, even in our midst, but oftentimes even we'll leave churches because of what happens horizontally as opposed to what God wants us to focus on vertically, right? People disappoint, that's true. We are those people, we also disappoint. We make judgments that are unsound and unwise at times. And James is saying, listen, be careful to not Fix your eyes on the favoritism of man, but fix your eyes on the Lord of glory. Close your eyes, lift your head to the heavens and praise God from whom all blessings flow. The doxology. He continues though in verse two with the example. He says, suppose there's a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing that comes into your assembly. Now the word assembly there is the word synagogue, which literally translates synagogue. Now other times in the New Testament, you'll see the word assembly and it'll be the word koinonia, which means the assembly of people, the gathering of people. Here, what James is saying, suppose there's a person who comes literally into the synagogue, to the place in which New Testament believers might have gathered early in the local church. Now, we know eventually New Testament believers would gather in homes and other public sectors, anywhere they could gather. But early in the writing of James, suppose there were some that were meeting still in a synagogue in a local city. He says, okay, you're there, you're meeting, and there's a guy who comes and he's wearing fine clothing, a gold ring. And you look at him, you go, wow, he's somebody. As opposed to him, you have the other end of the spectrum, there's a poor man in shabby clothing who also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, you say, hey, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over here, you sit down here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves 
and highlight, underline, circle, whatever, become judges with evil thoughts. What James says here is a very pertinent issue. He says, if you believe that you are just creating for yourself a small conundrum, he says, you're wrong. He says, if you show favoritism or the sin of partiality by exalting the rich and lowering the value of the poor, then he says, you have done great wrong. And why he's warning that culture is because they live in a culture in which class, ethnicity, skin color, distinctions made of religious class, et cetera, are very important. And so though those things exist in that day and age, James is saying you have to be careful that you're not showing partiality based off of male or female, slave or free, Greek or barbarian. Why? Because Paul said they're all one in Christ. We have one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, as he writes to the church of Ephesians. And so as a result of that, we we don't show partiality. And so Paul is making that very clear to a multitude of churches, including the church of Galatia. So why is James saying that? Because their culture showed partiality. Now I know that that seems like a foreign thought to us because partiality would never exist in our day and time, right? But James, nonetheless, back then, is writing a couple thousand years ago and saying this is something you should pay attention to. Now, I think God's word is incredibly applicable, and I think it stands the test of time, and I think it's also something we should be warned against, showing partiality. Why? Because when you do so, you judge with evil thoughts. Now, you might wonder, well, why does he make such a hard statement, judge with evil thoughts? Well, I think the reality is, is because he's about to show you that the ways of man don't always translate the same way the ways of God does. I think Isaiah the prophet said that in Isaiah chapter 55, that God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. As a result of that, oftentimes we make judgments and we render ourselves as gods, little g, in inconspicuous ways. The reason I say it's inconspicuous is because you oftentimes don't tell other people what's swirling around in your head. But yet it is God that knows the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And so as a result of that, we need to make sure we're not sinning. So James then asks three questions. He begins in verse five. He asks a question there, ask another one chapter, uh, in verse six, and then another one in verse seven. So the first question he asks, he says, hey, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So he says, can God not use a poor person? So he says, you exalt the rich in the synagogue, and then you have the poor person sit over there at your feet. And so as you exalt the rich, do you remember how God calls people? He oftentimes does what? Things through the poor. Matter of fact, as a result of that, Paul writes later on after James' letter, and he's gonna say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following, as he writes to the church of Corinth. I'll put it for you. If you wanna flip over to it, you can. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says this. He says, guys, for, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you, not many, underscore, that means majority, majority of you were not wise according to the worldly standards. So most of you were C students. You weren't, you weren't all stars. You weren't, you weren't to be highlighted. You were average. You were ordinary according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. 
Not many of you are of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He goes on and says this, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth and he says, hey, listen, God didn't call you according to your wisdom. He didn't look at you and go, oh man, we got to have you as a part of the kingdom of God because you are elite among your peers. He didn't look at you and say, oh man, look at that fine looking gold jewelry you have. Hey, look at that incredible tunic and cloak you're wearing. Hey, come because you're robed in royalty. Come and follow me. That's not what you see at all. Matter of fact, what you see in the scriptures, according to the gospel of Luke, is a rich young man who couldn't follow Jesus because Jesus says, denounce yourself, take and throw away all your stuff, all your riches, come and follow me. And it says that the man walked away, what? Downcast. And then Jesus said something next. He says, it's easier for a rich man, what? To pass through the eye of a needle than it is for him to inherit eternal life. Why does he say that? Because he says, you presume that a rich person might be lofty, but he said, I want you to tell you that I do things differently. And so Jesus clearly is the depiction of who God is as he flips the world on its head, upside down. That's why Jesus, even as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are what? In a sense, despised and rejected and lowly. See, that is exactly what our king was. Our king was lowly. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. He was uh, in many ways cursed before man. Why? Because he, he was a depiction of what we are to be. And he is a depiction of the people that we were and were called out of. And so as a result of that, James says, you just need to be careful that you don't exalt the wrong people and diminish the work of God that he's done among the unwise or the poor or those that in your area of life, you might think are lowly and destitute. He says, those are the people that God seems to be using. Now, just remind yourself of a story real quickly in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel when Samuel goes to Jesse, which was the father of a guy named David, and he says, hey, the next king of Israel is going to be one of your sons. And Samuel says, hey, which one, you, which one it is? And he goes and he gets his prized son. And he brings him and Samuel goes, that's not him. He goes, you got another one? Yeah, I got, I got several more. He brings one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them in front of him. And in perplexion, Samuel goes, they look great. I mean, they look better than Saul, our king now. But you got another one. God says, none of them. Well, I got one more. He's out, I mean, he's out, at, he's out tending the sheep. He's a shepherd. He's lowly in status. Like, well, go get him. They bring little David. David, ruddy in appearance, doesn't look like a star. God says, it's him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, you might recall, the Lord says this. God does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks at the heart. And friends, you and I don't have the ability to see and know the heart, but God does. And so what we have to be careful is what James is saying is be careful to make not judgments on someone's exterior or their appearance, which is a whole nother sermon in itself if I wanted to go on a tangent, but I won't. So we'll continue on verse six. He asks another question. So if you've dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones the one who oppress you and drag you into the courts? So he basically says, okay, if you exalt the rich and you despise the lowly, if you despise the lowly, are you despising the very one God has called to do something? Because if, if it was up to us, David would never been king. So are you making yourself like God when you despise the very ones God wants to use? Secondly, when you exalt the rich, do you not remind yourself that it's the rich that have the ability to drag you into a court? in many cases, oppress you. So he says, that's what rich people do. They have the ability to bring pain and destruction. Paul writes that to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to read it for you. You can go look it up for yourselves. But one of the things that, that Paul wrote, uh, wrote to Timothy, and he said, I just want to warn you, the rich, if not careful, will fall into the trap of temptation. And in, in doing so, they're going to snare you, and they're going to bring pain and destruction to your family. And that's when he says in verse 10, the famous line, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Which the reality is, is when we love our money more than we love people, that's a problem, right? Why, why does Paul write that to Timothy? And moreover, why does, does James make this case? Because he says, listen, if you exalt the rich, you need to know that the rich have the ability to drag you into court. And verse seven, look what it says. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? They have the one, they have the ability to smear your name. So not only can they drag you into courts, but the very one name you have, which is worth far more than rubies or gold, as Proverbs says, they have the chance to ruin. And so rich people have an advantage over you. So you need to be careful who it is that you decide to be best friends with by judging an exterior appearance. Now, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading through this text, I go, okay, hold on, James, do you have something against rich people? Because if you're saying show no partiality, it sure seems that you're showing partiality to the poor person, not the rich person. But that's not the case at all. What he's simply doing is he's giving you an example. He's saying the reality is this. He's not encouraging us to look down on rich people because can, I, can, can God use people who have little money and people who have lots of money? Yes. So I could testify to you that God has done both within this place. God has used people who have the widow's might and they bring it and it's accepted. There are others that they have far more than I'll ever dream of having. And God has used it. The reality, what James is saying is, listen, it's not a problem to be rich or poor. It's a problem to show favoritism to the rich or poor based off of your own potential benefit. So the idea is if, they're walking into the synagogue and you look at how he's dressed and you think, oh man, this can benefit the offering plate. And he goes, that's a problem. At the same time, if you're looking at them and you go, oh man, we need them in our church because they've got a lot to offer monetarily. Then he says, you're, you're lording this case with wrong motives. Okay. Now I'm not kidding you when I tell you this story. I didn't say it in the first service, but I'll say it in the second service. We are planting our church 12 years ago. 
And a lady that I've known for many, many years called me in anger. And she says, what are you doing? And I said, I, I, I guess I'm, I, I really was baffled. And she said, well, there was somebody who recently visited your church from our church. And I'm appalled at it, quite frankly. And then she began to scold me because she believed their church was going to lose financial contributions to ours. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that's a problem? That's oh, not rhetorical. I'm asking, is that a problem that someone would call up someone who is faithfully seeking to honor the Lord and then scold them outright based off of a potential loss of money monetarily? Is that a problem? Okay, now my question would be, why is that a problem? Because she scolded me? No, I've been scolded a ton in my life, so I'm good with that, okay? That happens, okay? Why is it a problem? It's because you're presuming, listen to me, you're presuming to be God. And I'm gonna get stern, I'm gonna get serious here, and here's why. You and I have no right to tell anyone where they can or can't go in their means of faith. And so if you decide that it's best for your family to leave the local bride here and you're gonna serve God faithfully somewhere else, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Like that's the key. Like we're in the kingdom together. If you don't know that, then you've got to wake up. We're in the kingdom together. You might ask the question, well, what happens if somebody that's wealthy leaves? To God be the glory. Why? Well, for one, I can't tell them where to go. Two, if God is going to bring about their sanctification in another place, praise God. Like that's a part of God's growth in us. Like I don't have the means or the ability to control where your sanctification happens. Thirdly, final point. If a person is more concerned about me financially than they are me spiritually, then do you wanna be at that place anyway? Which is a huge deal. And so the reason I say all that, and I did kind of get on a little bit of a podium there. And so like, if you felt like I was arrogant, that's not my heart. My heart is to say, that's what James is saying. James is, that's the most applicable thing that popped into my mind there. Like you could get it. Like that is true world application right there. Like we can't lord over someone's wealth as a means of potential sustaining our church. And here's why. The sustenance and the sustainability of the local church is done through Jesus when he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I take that to mean that the forces of darkness don't interfere because of, and have no control or domain here because Christ is in charge. I also take the belief that whether rich or poor, for God's glory, he'll always give us enough to sustain ministry if we're faithful stewards of what he gives us. And so we may not have what every single other person has, or for that matter, what every faith, local faith component has, and that's okay. Matter of fact, when you look around our place, you may think, hey, this, these, these are, you know, man, humble buildings. Indeed, we have no offices. We don't have an office. Our staff does not have an office. They office in rooms. And you might say, well, when are you gonna build an office? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't presume to believe that's the most important thing we need right now. Like I'm okay, just give me a cubby in a corner. I live in a world where laptops go everywhere. I can office from home. I can office at a coffee shop. I can office at Dairy Queen. I can office some room. You throw me somewhere and I'm fine. Now, why does that matter? Because then we aren't dependent 
upon the guy who has a rich, rich ring and a nice cloak and tunic. He does, we don't care if he's got a fancy mule to carry him along, right? At the end of the day, we trust God. That, I think, is what James is saying. And so he goes on, he just says, be careful, because the rich man will ruin that for you. He'll drag you into court, he'll ruin your name, he'll be the one to wreck your lifestyle if you're not careful. So just be warned that not all rich people have good motives. He then goes on to verse eight, and he says, here's the key. If you'll fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Now, when he says the word royal law, he's using the word uh, basilikos in the Greek, and basilikos literally means the king or the person of honor. It's the royal precept. And so what he says is, he goes, if you'll just keep the royal precept, the law, according to the scripture, then he goes, you'll be fine. Now, you might ask the question, well, what, what is it that he's talking about? Well, here's the deal. As James writes, he is actually referencing, I believe, the Sermon on the Mount multitude of times. And so one of the things he's referencing, in my opinion, is Matthew chapter seven. I believe he has verse 12 in mind. And this is what verse 12 says in, in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is concluding that long sermon, this is what verse 12 says. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. He goes, it's simple. He goes, you, you wanna have a faith that's long lasting? You wanna, be, you wanna be in a place where you're good with God? He goes, it's very simple. Do to others what you wish they would do to you. That's the golden rule. It's the royal law. Now you might ask the question, well, hold on, hold on. I thought there was another law that was supreme to that. And you go, well, what is it? Well, it's the same one that Jesus inferences in, uh, is it Matthew 22? Um, yeah, Matthew 22, verse 36 and 40, when the, the lawyers comes to Jesus, say, hey, what's the most important law? You remember what Jesus says, he says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he says, and the second one's like it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what did Jesus just do there? He says, That's, that sums up the law and the prophets. So what is the law of the prophets? The law of the prophets is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. In essence, he just summed up the royal law, the royal precept, the golden rule, whatever you want to call it. You want to be God's person? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You want to add another rendering of that? Add your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love your neighbor yourself? You love them whether they're rich or poor, black, brown, white. Why? Because there's not, listen, there's not 37 races. You go to fill out your, your uh, stuff for a, a visa and they want to know, you know are, you, are you grape? Are you, are you orange crush? What are you? I'm human. And listen, let me just blanket it for you. You're either a Jew or I presume most of us in this room are Gentiles. That's it. It's all there is. Jew or Gentile. The Bible makes it very clear. Let me hop on one other bandwagon real quick because I can there's one other distinction in the scriptures, male or female. That's it. Now, why is that important? It's because, because of the fact that we aren't creators, we don't have the ability to judge the creation. Only God does. Now keep that in your head and heart. If God established male and female and he established Jew and Gentile, then the reality is all this other stuff 
is man-made, it's from the creationists, and as a result, it creates more hostility and more division when really God makes it really clear. You're either a male or a female, and you're either a Jew or a Gentile. From that, you can be rich or poor, you can be brown or black or white, but the way you treat one another has no basis of anything other than you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why did God make it that clear? Because he knew that we would convolute it, and he knew, just as he wrote to the Church of Rome, that we would easily take what was the creation, and we would exalt it over the Creator, and we would believe lies, and God would hand us over to it. Now, have we experienced that in our day? Yes. One of the areas we have to be careful about is the sin of partiality. Why? Because we are making judgments upon things that have been created by other people that actually are figments of our imagination. Because there's only male and female, Jew and Gentile. And everything else, whether rich or poor, can all be used for God's glory. I hope that's helpful. That's why he says this in verse 11. Or verse 10, he says, hey, for whoever keeps the whole law uh, but, but fails in one point has become guilty all. Let me go up to verse 9. Sorry, that. he says, but if you show partiality, he says, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law. Does that make sense? Okay, I, I think we've made that one clear, right? So if you, you commit sin, he says, you're convicted by the law. Now he's talking about the law. He used the word in the Greek nomos, which literally means the Mosaic law or the... Uh, Pentateuch, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible. And he calls you a transgressor, which also translate in the Greek as a lawbreaker. So he says, you are a lawbreaker if you show partiality. And then he says this verse 10, just as a helpful note. He says, whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So he goes, if you miss one mark, then he goes, you, you've missed it all. Now, the reason that he says this is because it would have been very easy for a Jew in that day to say, okay, hold on, hold on, James. Um, the reason I gave favoritism to the rich man is because I was trying to love him like my neighbor. Now, are there loopholes in faith? Yes. That's what he's doing. So that would be what happened. Well, I was just trying to love him as my neighbor. So I gave him the best seat because I'm trying to love my neighbor as myself. And James says, listen, if that's a sin, then he goes, you just need to know that you've broken all the Mosaic law. Because if you break one part of the law, you've broken all the law. Then he gives a couple of examples of that. And he says, verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So he says, listen, if you've broken one of those, you're guilty of all of it. Now, why that's important is because a Jew in a common language is... is could be in some ways a dice playing cheater if not careful. Y'all ever played uh, golf with an honest person? <laughs> not often, right? And so I play with friends and they'll tell you straight up, I get one mulligan every hole. Now a mulligan, a mulligan means I get one redo every hole. So maybe you're like, I don't even know what golf is or play golf. There's 18 holes, which means right out of the gate, they're already cheating 18 times. Not to count the time where the golf ball lands behind a tree and they look around and then they use their foot to conveniently kick the ball back into a place for them, right? So that's right. It's called the foot wedge. That's right. So now why, why does that even matter? Because that's how the Jew oftentimes thought about the Mosaic law. If I did this one right and I did this one right and I did this one right, then I had a mulligan over here. 
I did this one right and this one right, and I had another mulligan over here, especially if you couldn't see the mulligan. And that's how they thought about it. And so Jews would oftentimes on their deathbed hope that the score balanced in their favor, which that's the challenge with the Buddhist, the Hinduist, and any other faith outside of the faith according to the word and the way of God, which is Jesus Christ. Every other faith has a man flip a coin at the end of life and they hope that they do more bad than good. That was the Jew, which is why James says, if you exalt the rich man and diminish the poor man, he says, it's just like murdering someone. It's just like committing adultery. So if you've done one of those, you, hey, you're already wiped out, which is why he says this, you should pay attention that you are what? living under the law of liberty. And so that's why he says, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? The law of liberty is that the captives are set free. Who are the captives? You and I. What are we captive to? The Mosaic law. So here it is. And I'm already gonna run over, so get ready for it. Here it is. If you're complaining about it, your eyes are not set to the heavens. They're set somewhere else. So here it is, listen, the Mosaic law would be like me as a parent telling my young ones, hey, here's 10 rules to follow. Don't break those because that's how you earn your way to the kingdom. The problem is, is that my children have already broke, obey your father and mother four times today, <laughs> right? Now you moms in here like, I get an amen. I'm like, and you're like, bless your heart, Brandon. Y'all are doing good. Mine's like eight times, right? So why do I say that? Because if you and I are held to the Mosaic law, we're doomed. We're doomed. And you go, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Okay, but you've showed partiality. And Jesus goes a little further. So he goes, well, but you have murdered someone because you have evil intentions in your heart. So do you see what James is picking up on? He goes, you may not have physically murdered anyone, but you have hatred and there's these vile things that are happening in your heart and head. And you, you might in some ways disclose them like a mulligan behind a tree, but he says, the Lord sees it all. He knows the man's heart. And so as a result of that, he is just saying, hey, you need to live under the law of liberty. Now the question is, is what is the law of liberty? The law of liberty happened when God who is rich in mercy sent his son Jesus to pay the price of sin on our behalf. John chapter three, there's a guy named Nicodemus and Jesus was talking to him. And as a religious leader in Israel, he goes, hey, Jesus, you keep saying this thing about be born again. What do, you, what do you mean? Like I'm supposed to go back into my mother's womb? And I can see Jesus chuckling or laughing in John chapter nine because he goes, oh, oh, hold on, you're the leader in Israel? And you think I'm talking about going back into the mother's womb? No, he's saying, I, I'm asking you to be born again of spirit. Like I want you to be remade. And now as a result of that, you might ask the question, well, how does that happen? And Jesus beautifully says, look, you're gonna to look to the son of man high and lifted up. You're gonna to look to the one who is crucified in the sinner stead. And when you do that, he goes, you no longer live under the nomos, this mosaic law, but now you live under the law of liberty. You were in darkness and like a grace-filled uh, person who comes in and sweeps up the captives and leads them free. He says, you've experienced a new life in Christ. And as a result of that, you're a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. And he goes, and that's the law of liberty. 
And the law of liberty is simply what God calls us to do. And so as a result of the law of liberty, he says this, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, what in the world does he mean there? He says, listen, if you have been, if you have been led free, you were formerly a captive and now you are set free from your sin and bondage. Then he says, wouldn't it make sense that one who understands mercy would give mercy? Wouldn't it make sense that one who has been bestowed the ultimate kindness, that your sins would be forgiven, that you too would bestow that type of kindness? And friends, that is what James is simply saying, which is why he picks up, I think, on the Sermon on the Mount in, verse, in chapter seven, verse one and two, he says this, judge not that you be not judged. You remember what Jesus says? And he goes on, he says, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, you'll be, it'll be measured to you. Now, when Jesus says these words, they're oftentimes used out of, out of context. For instance, on Facebook, you'll say something about somebody and then somebody will make it in the comment section. You have no right to say that. And then they'll say, you, should, what? you shouldn't judge because you're gonna be judged. And real quickly, just so you understand, the context of this does not mean you don't make judgments, okay? Just, just saying, if the ice cream man comes, down my road today, which is Van Zandt County Road 3809, and ask my kids to get into the van, what judgment am I making? Heg no, ain't happening, right? Now, I would assume that you would make the same judgment. We make judgments every day. So what Jesus is not saying, not make judgments. Matter of fact, if you continue to read Matthew chapter seven and verse six, this is what Jesus says in Matthew seven, verse six. He says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw to your pearls before pigs, lest they trample underfoot and then attack you. Later on, he's gonna say this in verse 15, beware of false prophets and beware of those who are dressed in sheep's clothing as wolves in sheep's clothing within your midst. Does that sound like a judgment to you? I mean, Jesus is very clearly saying, be on your guard. So what is he saying here? I think John Stott puts it beautifully when he says this, the command that James is giving here, the command to judge is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. So we don't just make judgments irrationally. We make judgments with judicial responsibility. But more than that, as we make judgments, we are generous. Now, how are we generous? I think Paul wrote it beautifully as he wrote to the church of Corinth. And he says, as such were some of us. Paul acknowledged oftentimes that he goes, I was a fool too. I once was a sinner too. And so if you can keep that in mind that I too have messed up, then doesn't it help you to be more civil and more merciful to the poor? and to the rich, and to the sinner, and to the Greek, and to the barbarian, and to the slave, and to the free, and to the male, and to the female. You see the picture here? Why? Because here it is, forgiven people forgive much. People who've experienced the grace and the loving kindness of God give the grace and the loving kindness of God. And James says, make sure you do that even among your relationships. Don't honor one person and discount another. Why? Because what God is doing in your midst may not be revealed to you yet. And so love everyone as if you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love them also as you would love yourself. 
That makes sense? Praise the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for today and thank you for the opportunity to be with my friends. And I pray, Lord, that as we wrap up our time together, that you would encourage our hearts to live faithfully for our King. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, that you lavished upon us your love. And in turn, you encouraged us to let others know that we are your people, your disciples, by the way we love one another. And so, Lord, I pray that today as we walk out of here, there would be evidence that we know you because of the way we treat others. And I pray that you would help us sow seeds of righteousness in the lives of those that we know. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name we 